0: Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark.
1: And I'm Bethan. And thank you for joining us for part two of our deep dive into the murder of Peter Falconio.
0: If you haven't already listened to part one, then I would definitely recommend listening to that episode before you get stuck into this one.
1: Of course you'd recommend they listen to it because it was your episode. Well, because
0: otherwise this won't make any fucking sense.
1: (laughs) We wanted to say a big thank you as well to our new Patreon supporter, Carol Wood. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to support the show too, like Carol has, um, you can head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash Seeing Red Podcast for further details. Did I get that right? Yeah. Amazing.
0: Last week, we ended the episode with Joanne and Peter stranded on the Stuart Highway, about 300 kilometres from Alice Springs, deep in the Australian outback. When a fellow driver pulled up alongside the couple, urging them to pull over, their nightmare was just beginning. So I'm going to start part two as I started part one, which I promised in part one. And what follows is the victim impact statement of Joan Falconio, Peter's mother, as read to Darwin's Supreme Court before her son's murderer was sentenced. Peter was a very kind and caring person. He always had time to listen to people. He was popular and outgoing and made friends easily. He also had a wonderful sense of fun. Peter was bright and intelligent and had worked hard for his university degree. He had worked in construction management in the south of England before leaving for Australia in November 2000. I spoke to Peter for the last time on the 13th of July in 2001. We had a lovely talk together. He was laughing and joking, making plans as he always did. Joanne was beside him and I could hear her laughing. They sounded so happy. Little more than 24 hours later, our lives changed forever. On the 15th of July in 2001, the telephone rang. Two English backpackers had been ambushed on the Stewart Highway just north of a place called Barrow Creek. A male of 28 and a female of 27. The female was safe, her boyfriend was missing. I knew Peter and Joanne were on that road but didn't want to believe it was them. I prayed it wasn't. Two hours later, the phone rang again. It was them. Peter was gone. There was a pool of blood on the road. I fell to my knees. I could never describe to you the depth of my feeling, and what I tell you next will only touch the surface. The torment and constant physical pain never left my body for months. The images of what had happened to Peter were always in my head. The not knowing was unbearable. I suffered the most awful panic and anxiety attacks. I never knew mental and physical pain could be so relentless. Days merged into weeks, weeks into months. I honestly thought I would die and many times I wanted to. I had to constantly see my sons or check on them that they were safe. Our family was always a close one, but the pressure we were under was immense. At times we were torn apart. You walk on eggshells, each not wanting to hurt or upset the other. Sometimes the tension was so great, I thought our marriage would collapse. The press were intrusive and invaded our privacy. They failed to focus and report the facts, preferring to report articles that were irrelevant and distracted from the crime itself. Luciano, my sons and I came to Australia nearly 10 weeks ago to see justice done for the murder of Peter. The trial has been long and very harrowing. We have listened to the evidence and have no doubt the jury have made the right decision. We hope the sentence given to Murdoch will reflect the brutality of the crime he committed and of the life he took. The pain will never go from me. I think of Peter every minute of every day. He was only 28 years old and had so much living left to do. Isn't that just harrowing? Mm,
1: so sad. And it also it does remind you that there's always like this impact on the rest of the family. The fact that she was saying, like, their marriage was under so much strain, it's horrible.
0: Yeah, and I also think when she says that she actually felt like she could die several mm-hmm. times. And I wanted, think, to, yeah, and wanted to. Yeah, and wanted to. I think, you know, the emotional, physical stress that you're under is just horrific. Mm. So, as I said, I'm going to pick up exactly where we left off last week. It's a cold, dark night on the Stuart Highway in the middle of Australia. Joanne is sat in the driver's seat of the VW Combi, whilst Peter is at the rear of the vehicle with the driver who just moments earlier had pulled the couple over. When Joanne hears the engine backfire, she momentarily holds her head in her hands. When she looks up and out of the window, she sees the man that had pulled them over staring at her, and is holding a gun and is pointing it at her. Turn the engine off, the man demanded in a commanding tone. Did you like that? <laughs> acting skills. Joanne freezes and studies the man's face and in her book she describes him as being expressionless and cold and she remembers thinking that he just radiated evil. Why, why are you doing this, Joanne shoots back in a panicked voice. The man doesn't answer, instead he instructs her to put her hands behind her back. She refuses and reaches for the door handle, but when the man puts his silver revolver to her head, she understandably relents. The man positions her hands together behind her back, and ties something around her wrists before dragging her out of the combi. Now on her knees on the side of the road, Joanne is panicking. She screams for Peter, but there is nothing, just a disturbing silence which is only punctuated by the sound of the wildlife in the arid landscape which surrounds her. Joanne knows Peter is likely dead, but she only allows herself to think this for a brief moment, Instead, she clings to the desperate hope that he is somehow alive. The man grabs Joanne's ankles and tries to bind them with something, but she is not giving in lightly. Punching her attacker in the crotch in the vain hope that she can disable him, she doesn't get very far when he strikes her in the head with his fist. Joanne continues to scream for Peter, and her attacker puts tape over her mouth to shut her up. The man drags Joanne to her feet and hauls her to the front passenger door of his 4x4, before placing a sack over her head. Now struggling to breathe, Joanne manages to remove this before the man pushes her inside his vehicle. On the driver's seat, Joanne notices a dog, and the dog just stares blankly at her with an expressionless face, and I thought that's... Obviously, this is all really traumatic for her, but that must have also really freaked her out, because there's this massive commotion going on and the dog is just sat there doing nothing. He's not barking, oh, okay. he's not, like, trying to escape, he's not trying to attack her. And yeah. I just wondered, is the dog as traumatised as Joanne was? Oh, okay, maybe. Or I is just he just used was... to seeing his master behave mm. that way?
1: I thought it was quite funny the way you said it was expressionless, as if, like, dogs generally have, like, human expressions. But that does make more sense now because yeah, I, mean. I started to laugh because I was like, well, it's got a dog expression, Mark.
0: But, well, I think dogs but, yeah, are really expressive. Like,
1: they can be, but, like, when you know your own dog, mm. I feel like if you just see a dog in the street, though, sometimes you're like, oh, that looks like a happy dog, and then it growls or something.
0: But you're more of a cat person, aren't you? Oh,
1: I know. I like dogs. I love uh, dogs. I love animals. Okay. love animals. But, yeah, so that's interesting. So it was just sat there. It wasn't trying to go for her, but also it wasn't interested in, like, going to its owner or anything. It's just sat there staring at yeah.
0: her. Yeah. It was just one of those things I just mm. found it a little bit weird so the next thing Joanne knows she's in the back of the 4x4 which I suppose at this point I've not really described it very well because it's not like a Land Rover or your kind of typical 4x4 it's a ute okay with like the
1: open back yeah Yeah. so
0: a bit like a pickup truck Mm -hmm. um our Australian listeners will know exactly what I'm on about any fans of Neighbours or Home and Away will too I'm sure um but yeah for the benefit of anyone else it is basically a big pickup truck um it's got this kind of trailer in the back which in this case was covered by a canvas canopy mm-hmm. um, but the actual area where the driver and any passengers would sit is completely separate to that area mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah so Joanna's is in the back of the youth under this canvas canopy and every time i say canopy i want to say canopy <laughs> like food <laughs> just got food on the brain, on the brain. <laughs> so it's pitch black underneath the canopy but she knows her attacker isn't in there with her because she can hear his footsteps on the opposite side of the vehicle She screams at the man, what do you want? Is it money? Is it the combi? Just take it. The man pokes his head through a gap in the canvas towards the rear of the vehicle and calmly tells her to shut up or I will shoot you. At this point, Joanne is convinced that he has already shot Peter, but still desperately she clings to the hope that he is alive, just injured. She becomes hysterical now, screaming at the man. Where's Pete? What have you done to Pete? What have you done to my boyfriend? What have you done to him? Have you killed my boyfriend? Have you? Have you? Have you shot Pete? Once again, the man returns to the gap in the canvas and calmly says no. Joanne knows he is lying and what's more, she knows she will be next. And in her book, she describes this moment so vividly. She says that right there in the middle of the outback, she knew she was going to die and she'd accepted that. Mm. she says a strange feeling of calm descended over her and she knew there was no point in fighting anymore this is how her life was going to end and she just had to accept that which although I've obviously never been in that situation I do kind of get it and I think it's like you realize you're powerless now and this is your fate Mm, yeah this is the way that your life was meant to end Mm. which is awful Mm. um and I do I do wonder with Joanne was there also a feeling that You know, by continuing to fight, was she just prolonging the agony and the inevitable? exactly. So having regained this kind of sense of calm in such a horrific situation, Joanne was able to think clearly for the first time since her ordeal had started. Her mind was filled with what might happen next, and suddenly she pictured the man raping her. Adrenaline now rushed through her body, and her senses came alive. She can hear the man outside now. He is clearly preoccupied with something. She can hear the sound of gravel underfoot like he's scraping the ground with his shoe. She knows it is now or never and still bound by her hands and feet, she edges herself silently towards the rear of the ute, towards that gap in the canvas. Joanne manages to swing her feet over the edge of the ute and as they land on the gravel beneath her with a crunching thud, She stands silently for a moment, thinking her attacker must have heard her. But nothing. He is still preoccupied.
1: Wow. See, that's the bit where you'd imagine you'd swing your legs over and he'd just grab your legs or something terrifying. You're
0: going to be in such a high state of alert, so Mm. panicked. So I should say at this point, um I don't think her feet were actually bound together that well, possibly just loosely with duct tape or something. Because what happens now is that Joanne literally runs for her life deep into the bush.
1: I guess as well. Even if your ankles you could like run but in a hobbly manner. If if you've got all that adrenaline going yeah. through your through you, you kind of do get like superhuman strength, don't you? And yeah. so even if they are like there's a rope or duct tape and they're still taped together-ish you're going to just go for it you aren't could probably
0: me? just like break it apart with the sheer yeah, force of moving definitely. your your feet so don't forget it is pitch black the kind mm. of darkness where you can't even see your own hand in front of your face
1: when i was looking for pictures when we were when i was doing the instagram posts and the facebook posts like the teasers for the episode I did look at some of like the night sky in the outback, and it is absolutely incredible. You can't see anything, and there's just loads of stars. I'm laughing because you
0: know what you should have done is just you know we generally do a bit of a collage, and we have a few No, just do like one one square in black, and that could represent the night sky. Oh,
1: I should. Did you know? That's why you should have been in charge of that. No, no, you're better at those.
0: (laughs) Did you know in the collage that you did for part two Mm. on the bottom right hand corner that's not actually Joanne and Peter. Those are the actors that played them in the TV movie. Yeah, yeah, it's in like that bit. Okay, I'll let you off then.
1: Yeah, we discussed that. No, I know we
0: discussed it, yeah. (laughs) Trying to
1: make me sound bad to our listeners. Yeah,
0: well, I thought I'd name and shame. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's really, really dark. Um, So Joanne keeps running, not once looking back, focusing all of her superhuman energy in getting as far away from the road and her attacker as possible. As she continues to run deep into the outback, she starts to hear the sound of footsteps getting closer. The man is chasing her. He is a tall bastard and she knows that he'll be able to catch up with her if he continues running in the same direction. So she suddenly shoots off to the left. She just about manages to make out a tree with low-hanging branches, so a bit like a bush, I suppose, um, the sort where the branches kind of rest on the ground, they kind of droop over, and she crawls underneath the branches, holding her breath and remaining silent. Joanne really is trapped here now If she moves She will make a noise And she can hear her attacker getting closer The dry undergrowth is being crunched By his 250 pound bulk As he darts around Desperately trying to locate his prey With what Joanne describes in her book As a controlled fury Which is just terrifying Mm this man is fully aware that joanna's seen his face she's seen his vehicle and his dog he knows that she most likely has his dna now on her Mm -hmm. he knows if she gets away there is a strong possibility that the police will find him and if he can find her and kill her he knows he will most likely get away with his heinous crime
1: I definitely say heinous.
0: I did think maybe heinous. I don't know what's correct. Heenous, I'm going to heinous, be honest, I don't heinous, heinous.
1: But then people do love to um, let us know which one of us is correct. So yeah,
0: let's tell us again.
1: See, see who was right. But I don't know. What'd you say again? heinous? Yeah. yeah. Sounds like anus
0: with an H at the I beginning. Knew that you'd
1: think that was funny.
0: <laughs> yeah. So Joanne can now hear the footsteps of the man and his fucking dog. Worse still, she can see the light from the man's torch, and it's a powerful torch, and the light permeates the dark landscape.
1: Oh, and dogs are good at smelling. Exactly. So that's gonna even work. So I refer
0: to this as a triple threat. Dog, In torch, Man. In part one. Yeah, Dog, torture, and Man. mm mm-hmm. um, And I also, when I have an Indian takeaway, I call it a triple threat, because like, if you have chips, rice and naan, triple threat.
1: Nobody has chips with a... Oh, mm-hmm. do,
0: yeah, with, with an like Indian... Actually yeah actually
1: at the Indian restaurant?
0: Yeah, my sister came up with that. I call it triple threat.
1: Hmm, I don't think I approve of your sister.
0: <laughs> Shut up, Beth then.
1: I would only have naan and poppadom. Oh, who
0: cares what you fucking have?
1: Do you not have a poppadom?
0: Well, I might do, but I'm i more on about a takeaway. Oh, okay. Would you have chips with a takeaway? No. Then? No? Okay. We'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Mm-hmm. So, Joanne is wearing trousers with a reflective stripe and starts oh, to panic once again. I mean, would you credit it? Yeah. If the man's torch catches the reflective stripe, then he's bound to investigate further in her mm-hmm. direction closing her eyes she starts hallucinating now that the man is standing next to her with his silver revolver pointed at her head she has to repeatedly open her eyes to tell herself that that is just her imagination and I, again i completely understand that she would the mm-hmm. the fear and the panic is so intense that yeah she's literally hallucinating yeah When she opens her eyes and looks up at the night sky, she sees the stars twinkling and wonders if she will ever see daylight again. Is this how her life was meant to end? On a dark, cold night in the middle of the Australian outback, being hunted like a wild boar by a deranged psychopath? I mean, you couldn't really make this shit up, could you? For kind of like scare factor. Mm -hmm.
1: It is terrifying. And I I
0: really don't think it can get much scarier than than that. Um and I say you couldn't, you couldn't make it up, but actually there have been a number of, uh, like horrors and psychological thrillers based on these events, mm-hmm. such as Wolf Creek. Yeah. Um, which I haven't seen, but I really want to see. Um, but, but the whole event was actually so traumatic for Joanne that years later she would be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder.
1: I'm not surprised.
0: Me neither. So back to the outback, it's almost like the man is now toying with her. She hears his footsteps getting closer and closer to the point where he is practically stood next to her, and then they fade away suddenly. She thinks he is done searching near to where she is sat, then he comes back again. And I did wonder at this point, maybe he's just a bit disorientated, because obviously it is really dark. Mm. Maybe he's just getting a bit lost. I don't think he'd he'd have been able to see the road at this point, so maybe he couldn't really orientate himself Mm. very well. And I think he was probably just like continually searching areas that he'd actually already searched. Yeah, he
1: just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, thinking at some point I'm going to stumble over her something.
0: yeah and he is desperate to find her because Mm. he knows if she gets away then yeah there's a strong chance yeah a strong chance he'll get caught so the footsteps finally grow more distant and joanne can now hear the sound of vehicle doors opening and closing she can also hear something heavy being dragged across the gravel in the distance finally she hears the sound of an engine starting and a vehicle driving away in a northerly direction Relief briefly washes over Joanne, but still on high alert, she wonders if the man is now tricking her. Fearful that he may return, she stays put. A short amount of time passes and Joanne does hear footsteps once again. The man is now back, standing to the right of the tree that she is hiding under. He is searching for her once again. The short respite of relief that Joanne had felt earlier is now replaced with a hopeless despair. What is the point of even trying? This man was clearly intent on finding her and surely it would only be a matter of time before either his dog or his torch shed light on her hiding place. Just as Joanne is about to give up hope once again, she hears the footsteps grow more and more distant. She can make out the sound of a vehicle door opening and closing in the distance and then the sound of an engine being started. The roar of the engine becomes progressively quieter and at this point she does know instinctively that the attacker has now given up in his search.
1: Because mm. I guess like the first vehicle is him moving like their van It was, he was moving so, the combi, yeah, yeah,
0: off the road and sort of hiding it behind mm-hmm. a bush. So Joanne is still in a state of shock and remains under those branches for the next five hours, paralysed with fear. She has a feeling that Peter is nearby, most likely injured, but she is simply too traumatised to move. She won't allow herself to think that he might be dead. If she goes to that dark place, she knows any fight left in her will just disappear and her fate will be sealed. Because people have died in the outback, Mm. just from kind of like hypothermia at night in July, it would have been really, really cold out there. Yeah.
1: And I think if she could hear him, like, calling out for some help or whimpering or something, maybe it would be worth risking trying to get him I agree, look. yeah. But if you can't hear him anyway, then he's... It, and she's obviously trying to say, like, she doesn't want to think he's dead, so she's just like, he's unconscious somewhere. When I'm able to, I'll go and help him. And I, I think that's valid.
0: I think in her heart of hearts, she well, knows he's dead. Know. She must have known. And she's heard that, you know, something heavy being dragged oh, across the gravel. Yeah. That was obviously Peter's body. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, I think she knows, but she just won't allow herself to actually mm. admit it to herself.
1: I wonder now with the dog, like that dog clearly wasn't very good at like finding her and they should be able to find her with like smelling. So I wonder if that dog, like you said before, is just completely traumatized by like whatever shit his owner is. That it just kind of is like in a daze all the time as well. Maybe It could be
0: or yeah, I mean, could be quite fearful of the owner. Um, The only other thing that I that crossed my mind was that maybe the dog had been drugged. Yeah, with like a kind of you know relaxant or something to keep it behaved, I don't mm, know I don't know maybe so Joanne's wrists are still bound and she examines the makeshift handcuffs that her attacker has used on her. made from cable ties, there is one on each wrist with three looped cable ties joining them together, so if you're trying to imagine them, just try and imagine the shittest handcuffs that you've ever fucking <laughs> heard of.
1: I was actually really trying to imagine.
0: I think we might be able to get those on Insta. I'll have
1: a little look for those.
0: Because they were used as evidence in the trial, okay. so they are photographed.
1: I'll put them up once, yeah. like, on um, this Thursday once everyone's had a chance to
0: listen. So because of the three looped cable ties joining the other two cable ties together, it basically meant that there was a gap of like four inches separating Joanne's wrists. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so Joanne managed to contort her legs and body to actually step through the gap in her arms, meaning that she was able to position her hands actually in front of her now, mm-hmm. rather than behind her back. So if you're trying to imagine what that would look like, it would be some kind of like acrobatic move crossed with a bit of yoga, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to imagine like doing it and I think it's probably quite easy.
0: Actually, yeah, it was and like she proved four that inches in court. between
1: them, yeah. Yeah. And then once your hands are in front of you, yes they're still together, but you've got so much more movement and so much more so much more balance, use. I think yeah. as well
0: so as Joanne remains under the tree, her thoughts turn to her friends Kate and Simone, who are having a housewarming party at that precise moment and does anyone else ever do this when you're in a bit of a weird situation mm. do you ever sort of picture someone else and um, exactly what they're doing and right then when like you a know time, yeah, yeah, and you just think like how weird is that they're doing that mm. and I'm here yeah.
1: I don't think I have, but I think I probably will from now you on. You should
0: from now on. I think mm. maybe it just gives you a bit of perspective, I don't mm. know. Um Definitely. But yeah, she pictures her friends having fun in the warmth, drink in hand, partying without a care in the world, and there she is, alone in the outback, having experienced the most traumatic events imaginable. After five hours in the same spot under that bush, Joanne knows she has to take action now. She moves from the bush towards a road with the intention of flagging down a car. And I have to say at this point, this so reminds me of the film Eden Lake, which mm, is a British film, which you I know you've seen because you, you? I lent it to you in the days of DVDs.
1: You loved that film. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, I won't give loads away, but it's a British film about a couple that... Basically, they get married and they go camping on their honeymoon at Eden Lake. And they are then basically terrorised by a bunch of psychotic kids. Um, and at one point, the woman, like the wife, manages to escape. She finds herself on this quite nice housing mm-hmm. estate. It's quite posh. Um, she kind of bangs on one of the doors and this kind woman lets her into her house. And as this woman who's been attacked explains to the woman that's let her into her house what's happened, the other woman actually recognises that mm-hmm. it's one of her kids that had... Attacked her and her husband and say, so basically, they kill her. Yeah. So it's almost so you just... you didn't want to give too much away. But I, I've but definitely given, given that away bit a major, away. But it's be, an old film. It it's still a great wrong. film to watch. It's
1: still so terrifying, even when you know what's going to happen as well. Yeah.
0: But I think it's like that immense relief of thinking you've escaped. Yeah. You found safety and then you realise that you've walked straight into the lion's den. Mm-hmm. Anyway, great film. You gotta watch it. I think mm. it's probably the, one of the scariest films I've seen, if not it the scariest very scary. film. Yeah, yeah. A good one. But yeah, really, really good film. I think it's got Michael Fassbender in. Before he was like really critically acclaimed and famous, we like him. He's the husband. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I digress. But um, this is Joanne's concern right now. She knows she needs to flag a car down, but it is just so dark on this remote highway that all she is going to see is the car's headlight, not the make or model or the person driving it. So
1: yeah, but even if she sees it and it, she sees it's not his van or whatever, like the ute thingy, he could have just got a different car. Yeah, like you just don't yeah. Know. But mm.
0: she is quite clever because. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, she's really concerned that she's just going to flag down a random kind of car, get to the passenger side, and okay. sat on in the pass in the driver's seat is this psychopath. Mm. Um, but she does come up with a really good idea. She thinks if she can flag down a road train, which is basically a massive truck like a hundred meters long or something, then she can be pretty certain that it won't be the attacker yeah. that's driving it because they're quite unique vehicles used to transport goods in Australia,
1: and people would be using those for their job and they wouldn't be messing around yeah. kidnapping people. Yeah. In a and then getting back on work so you kind of guaranteed that that person is just doing their
0: journey yeah and even in the dark these trucks are really distinguishable yeah. um even you know in the distance and as i said yeah they're used to transport goods across australia so they are quite common there and they're kind of like if you're trying to picture what they look like and the sheer scale of them they are basically like three articulated lorries joined together Jesus. so and Joanna's seen them traveling on the Stuart highway and she knows that one will be coming along at some point because they're going up and down all the time. So she knows she's got to do something. She's got to take a chance now and try to get to safety. So standing at the side of the road, eventually one does approach. Joanne runs in front of the vehicle as it approaches, waving her arms hysterically, attempting to get the driver's attention. With seconds to spare before the vehicle hits her, she jumps out of the way and the truck comes to a grinding halt. Now, as I said, these vehicles are massive and because of its size, um, it took ages to stop. Mm -hmm. So like a few seconds, but it actually travelled half a kilometre. So yeah, Joanne kind of like runs towards the truck. The driver gets out um, and the driver at this point is thinking that he's actually hit someone. Mm -hmm. So he's got out of the truck to look for body parts, to look for blood. So, as the driver reaches the middle carriage of the vehicle, he hears Joanne's cries for help and manages to locate her. When he sees the cable ties, he calls out to another man in the cabin and tells him to get out. And Joanne starts to panic now. What if the other man Mm. is her attacker? After all, not many people would have been travelling on the Stuart Highway at this time of night. It's the early hours of the morning now, so perhaps they were in on it together, perhaps... The attacker had kind of hitched a lift and come up with oh some story God. to get the or held in hostage. Who yeah. knows? Joanne manages to fight the urge to run once again and breathes a huge sigh of relief when she sees that the other man isn't the attacker. The other man helps Joanne by cutting the cable ties from her wrists. She knows at this point that these people won't hurt her, which I get because why would they cut the cable ties from mm-hmm. her wrist if they were going to rape her and or they, attack her? Why would they... Yeah, I mean, it would be extremely unlikely, but it's that Eden Lake scenario, isn't it? it is,
1: yeah, of like you think you've got some help and then you don't.
0: Eden Lake Syndrome, ELS.
1: That's what you're going to start calling
0: it. I'm setting up a Just Giving page for it. (laughs) It's going to run alongside (laughs) our Patreon page. So, Get on with it. <laughs> oh, whatever, Bethan. So the two men, Vince Miller and Rodney Adams, put the cable ties in a toolbox, conscious to preserve them as evidence for the police. Oh, that's really good. Which is really, like, good foresight, um, as Joanne explains that her and her boyfriend have been attacked at the side of the road. She begs the two men to help her find Peter, and they detach the three loads from the vehicle and head north to see if they can find him positioning the vehicle so it faces the bush with its headlights on full beam the trio starts searching for peter when joanne mentions her attacker held a gun to her head the two men panic and convince her to head with them to the nearest police station immediately Mm,
1: i think that's completely valid i think that's
0: wise yeah yeah, because all, for all they know, the man is still out there somewhere mm-hmm. and they could be next yeah, on his hit list. Shot. So basically, as they're in the middle of nowhere, the nearest police station is like hundreds of kilometres away. So the trio decide to stop at the nearest place that resembles civilization, which is a place called Barrow Creek, and they stop at a roadhouse there. So again, for us non-Aussies, a roadhouse is a bit like a service station that you get on these kind of really long highways. Um But it's much better than a service station because... What does it have there?
1: Oh, what does it have there? What can you
0: not normally do at a service station in the UK because you're driving...
1: Oh, have a drink. Yeah,
0: it's got a fucking it's got pub a there. You can oh, get pissed. That's lovely, which I think is great. And she well, would have definitely yeah. needed a drink, wouldn't she? Oh my she?
1: god, I'd literally be like, I need all the gin in the world. Yeah, jeez. Yeah. But it was a really
0: weird place. She describes it quite vividly in her book, and it's full of like yokel types, and they're all pissed, and yeah, no one gives are. her any attention or kind of care. It's just really weird.
1: I think I'd rather that, though, than loads of people staring at me after what's gone on. But
0: they stare at her, they just don't help her. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a a weird situation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they stop there and they call the police. And basically, the investigation starts from here. Mm -hmm. So in a book, Joanne goes into loads of detail about the events that follow. And I'm not going to do that here um, in the interest of time. But suffice to say, the Australian police did a shit job. They treated Joanne like a piece of shit. They were convinced that she'd killed Peter pretty much from day one they showed her no empathy or compassion she wasn't given any medical attention immediately after the attack and also when she gave a statement at Barrow Creek Roadhouse they like she'd given her entire statement for a couple of hours and they couldn't even save it on the computer so they had to get her to give a statement again whilst they hand wrote it and they were rushing her and she was constantly being interrupted and that statement was evidence that was going to be relied on in court and put to her to kind of say that she wasn't a credible witness
1: that's really harsh i wonder if um not having read her book and obviously my gut instincts from knowing of the case were that she was involved somehow i wonder if that's perhaps what sort of made me feel like that because i've seen um sort of news reports and things maybe that suggested that side of things more
0: yeah So even weirder, she was handed into the care of the girlfriend of the landlord of the Barrow Creek Roadhouse even though she didn't know who that was. And she ended up staying with her and also the landlord's parents at their house for a period of time. So it was just all so shoddy on the and part of the police, the police just and just weird. Yeah, so they sound, did eventually, right? but initially it was just weird. And obviously, with you know, Joanne doesn't really know what to do. She's been through a traumatic experience. Her boyfriend is still missing. She doesn't know who to call. She doesn't know what the protocol is with such mm-hmm. situations. situation. So she just kind of like did as she was told.
1: Well, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah, of course like you would. The police need to help me, so I need to do what they say.
0: So as I said, I'm not going to delve into the police investigation too much, because mm. I personally don't think that's the crux of this story, and it's also not particularly interesting. But um, perhaps somewhat miraculously, 14 months after the attack...
1: 14 months? 14 oh, months, oh, okay. yeah, but
0: that ain't too bad. The police did find the man responsible.
1: Considering they've got nothing to go on apart from her descriptions yeah that's it she did an
0: e she issued an e-fit um but yeah i you know i don't think it was necessarily excellent police work to be fair i think it was more through sheer bloody luck Mm. um so bradley murdoch the guy that had attacked her and peter had been arrested and charged in late august of 2002 for the rape of a 12 year old girl and her mother and he wasn't actually convicted in the end because they didn't have enough evidence but there were echoes of that attack Um, With the attack on Joanne, so Murdoch drove a ute, he'd kidnap the mother and daughter in a similar way To how it attempted to kidnap Joanne And importantly He was refusing to give a DNA sample Whilst they investigated Mm. this rape Um, In the early stages of the investigation Into Peter's presumed murder And I say presumed Because his body hadn't been found at this point Mm -hmm. And actually has never been found um, Police had managed to obtain An unidentified DNA sample From the t-shirt that Joanne Had been wearing on the night of the attack Mm -hmm. Um, And DNA was also found on the handcuffs That she'd been wearing Which those two guys had preserved, so when police did finally obtain a DNA sample from Murdoch, I think that to go through the courts to get it, it was a match for the unidentified DNA found on the T-shirt wow. and the handcuffs. So I think it was just kind of like alarm bells rang with the police when they were investigating Murdoch for the rape of this mother and daughter. Mm. There were some echoes, some similarities. Joanne's case was, you know, really high profile case, so that that sprung to mind, and the fact that the guy was you know refusing to give a dna sample was suspicious and then Mm. when they get it yeah it just kind of so be it it is him
1: i mean the refusal for dna perhaps makes sense in that he is being accused of something so perhaps he didn't want to give his dna relating to that So, but it also does work quite well for peter's
0: and that's his right murder at that point um
1: but yeah really interesting i wonder how many other people though that he had attacked
0: it's a good point. I wouldn't yeah, say yeah. I
1: don't think you just go from no. doing nothing no. to then attacking He did a, a good woman job of and this. killing a guy at the same yeah. time, possibly. You'll tell us. And then also then next going on to like raping a girl and her mother. Like that's that's not something you just suddenly start
0: doing. No. No, this is a guy that had obviously been doing all manner of things for, Mm. I would say, a decent amount of time. So that evidence was enough to charge Murdoch with the murder of Peter Falconio and the kidnap of Joanne Lees. He was held on remand and due to the protracted legal system that this case was subject to, it wasn't actually until 2005 that he stood trial. So this happened in 2001.
1: Four years later, he actually stood trial. Basically, yeah. Three years
0: after he was kind of arrested for this and Mm. four years after it had happened. So the trial began on Monday, the 17th of October in 2005 at the Supreme Court in Darwin and was set to last for 10 weeks. Murdoch was charged on three counts, which were one murdering Peter Falconio, even though they hadn't found a body. 2. Depriving Joanne Lees of her personal liberty and 3. Assaulting Joanne Lees, causing actual bodily harm and threatening her with an offensive weapon, namely a gun During the first week of the trial, Joanne was called to give evidence There was one particularly chilling moment when Rex Wilde, acting for the prosecution Interrupted Joanne as she described her attacker, asking, Do you see the man today? Joanne turned her head and stared right at Murdoch before saying, yes, I'm looking at him. The two made eye contact and Murdoch shook his head before saying no. Joanne defiantly nodded back at him saying yes before giving him what she describes in a book as a scathing look of disgust. And I just think the audacity of him to just bare face lie to her face and be like, no. Mm. And this was basically the only time that Joanne actually looked at Murdoch during the trial. Mm -hmm. But I also thought at this point, he was actually behind glass, but he's in the, uh, you know, the kind of Supreme Court in Darwin. She is face to face with him. He is there and it's quite a civilised environment and people in suits. And I just thought, how weird is that for her, particularly Mm -hmm. after all those years, to come face to face with him? To see him again. You'd just be so scared, even though you know you're safe in there. You'd be so yeah. scared and it would just be such a weird situation.
1: And that is something that I didn't know about, that she actually was face-to-face with him in the court. Yeah. Because if my previous assumption that she was something to do with it and she'd set him up, that is, I mean, that's very cold to then look someone who you know is innocent in the face and yeah. and say that and then give evidence. So. That makes me think less that she has something to do with it. But,
0: I mean, I really don't. I'll come on to it a bit more at the end, but I mm-hmm. really don't think she did it. But equally, I get what you're saying, but if you're a cold a psychopath, you wouldn't give a fuck about, you That's know. That's
1: true, but then, I, I don't know, like, I don't feel like, from what people know of her and that sort of thing, was she a like I don't know. I don't know her enough. I don't know the case enough, but that's changing my mind a bit. Yeah, I like that. So,
0: Joanne was a woman on a mission. Her life had been on hold for four and a half years, waiting for her day in court, and she wasn't going to let anybody fuck with her in that courtroom. I've sworn a lot this episode, I know. but have. um, I don't know why. It's It's like
1: old Mark is back again. Maybe it's just
0: been one of them weeks. At one point, Grant Algy, acting for the defence, tried to cast doubt on her recollection of how Murdoch was sitting when he handcuffed her in the ute. In her police statement, Joanna described him as kneeling, but during cross-examination, Grant Algy challenged her recollection and basically got her to admit that she hadn't been looking at his legs and therefore couldn't be certain that he was kneeling. And he was just, I think, trying to make a point and to undermine her credibility as a reliable witness.
1: Oh, even if you don't look at someone's legs, I know. you can kind of infer from of course, being a human. Of course, yeah. What- it was so yeah, weak. Yeah, that's such a weak thing But, he, you
0: know, he was blatantly trying to say, you know, if she can't be sure about this, what else is is she just assuming and presenting as fact to the jury? I
1: know that's their job, but that does, it does frustrate yeah. me when they do things like that. I could that. have
0: done a better job at that. But, you know, this really sums Joanna up because she was defiant and she said to Algie in response to this, you're stood up, but I can't see your legs, but I know you're <laughs> standing. Yeah. You stand in. yeah. Um, and she was a really credible witness, so determined and assertive. And during the days following Peter's murder, I think that assertiveness, that control, that coldness... Potentially in front of the media was misconstrued by the police and certainly, you know, mm. the general public. But I did also read something that, you know, in the kind of hours and days after this event, she'd been prescribed Valium. Mm-hmm. So that would naturally numb her yeah. a little bit. So that could have also, um, contributed to people's perception of her at mm-hmm. that time. And, you know, in all, in all fairness to her, Uh, Well, not to her, but in all honesty, she didn't necessarily do herself any favours at times. And Mm -hmm. no one knows how to react in these circumstances. But she did wear this pink T-shirt with cheeky monkey written on it to one of the first press conferences oh that's weird so that's a bit weird isn't it
1: but then also she's backpacking across australia how much clothes is she exactly
0: and this is what she talks about in a book it's like come on you know yeah i wasn't really thinking about what to wear i was traumatized and i just had no clean clothes other than that she's not
1: gonna have like a nice smart blouse she's been backpacking yeah. Driving around in a van.
0: So for those of you with a good memory, you may remember me mentioning Joanne and Peter visiting that Red Rooster fast food restaurant on the day of the attack in part one. I remember mentioning that. Yeah. So, I said how Joanne had felt a chill as she entered the restaurant. And during the court case, it transpired that Murdoch had been at that exact same restaurant on the same day as the attack, possibly at the exact same time as Joanne and Peter.
1: So, he might have seen them and then decided to follow up because he thought they would be an easy target.
0: And isn't it weird that, you know, Joanne walks into that restaurant, feels a chill. And I know I keep saying it and I'm overthinking, but I love the idea that maybe she just kind of had a sixth sense that there was something in there that was a danger to her and she couldn't mm. quite put a finger on it you were I, just kind of looking at me like shut up Mark."
1: I just think it's hindsight isn't it you find out afterwards and then when you write your book 10 years later you remember it's like slight- I just think you would remember it slightly differently yeah well she Maybe. wrote a- she wrote a
0: book five years later I think but
1: okay not 10 but I don't know I don't know
0: okay. I,
1: li- I like the poetic license yeah. of it yeah. and I'm not one to say that she didn't feel a chill, but...
0: I have to be careful. She definitely said she felt a chill, but I have yeah. to be careful with the poetic license because with the Tracy Andrews episode, I got told off by a listener for saying that she when she took an overdose that she was foaming at the mouth, which yeah. I did say during the episode that I don't know whether she was, but yep. it sounds more dramatic. So mm. um, so I, since then, I've been really kind of strict with the, the act- facts. Stick to yeah. the
1: acting that you do so wonderfully and don't yeah. elaborate. <laughs> Fine.
0: Murdoch's defence tried to use this to their advantage by saying that the DNA on Joanne's t-shirt could have been transferred from Murdoch, perhaps brushing past her at the restaurant, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I said his DNA was also found on the makeshift handcuffs. Yeah. But the defence basically explained that away by saying that it could have been contaminated um, at some point or perhaps even planted by the police.
1: Or if it's on her T-shirt from an innocent reason and then she touches her T-shirt with her hands.
0: True, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And also that could be why she recognises him and says, yes, that's him. Yeah, that's true. Because she just has a memory of seeing that person. I think that's a
0: really good point. I wonder... Who's a clever girl? Put your hand up if you're a clever girl.
1: Well, I'm not saying I'm a clever girl because Bethan puts hand up. Because Murdoch has... Is in a trial for this, so I'm guessing it's more likely that she's saying that he's guilty. But I won, you know, yeah, is, yeah, there is that doubt to it about whether or not he's guilty, I suppose. There
0: is, yeah. I'm gonna, I know I keep saying it, but I'm gonna come on to that in a little bit detail in a moment. Mm. But, um, but I think if I was a juror in this case. Um, I would have just been even more convinced at this point of Murdoch's guilt because I honestly think he probably did see Joanne and Peter at the Red Rooster. Mm-hmm. I think he spotted her, liked what he saw, yeah. and I think he also probably spotted their bright orange camper van. Yeah. And I think he then set about a plan to track her down and rape her. I think Peter would, you know, obviously need to be silenced first, He's but he would have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what I've put, you know, to Peter, uh, uh, to Murdoch, he would have just been collateral damage. Yeah,
1: exactly. I also think as well you just see which direction they're driving off in that road is just going to keep going yeah where else are they going to you can't really Karen turn straight, off yeah so he's I got... think he could have
0: traveled a you know a decent mm-hmm. distance behind they're busy in their camper van chatting and laughing and joking yeah, and he's just getting prepared I really think that he put a plan into action mm. I think he saw them at the red rooster and and made his decision yeah. then that he was going to rape her and I think that was his motive I don't think his motive was to kill Peter Peter was purely collateral damage
1: yeah definitely agree
0: on Thursday the 10th of November, Murdoch's friend and business partner James Heppy was sworn in as a witness. He told the court that in 2001 he and Murdoch were involved in transporting cannabis between Broome in Western Australia and Sedan in South Australia. He told the court that they would take it in turns to make the 3000 thousand kilometre trip and that both men relied on amphetamines to stay awake. Heppy had caught up with Murdoch after his latest drug run in mid July, so shortly after Peter and Joanne had been attacked. Heppy said Murdoch had altered his appearance at this point; he'd had a haircut and trimmed his moustache, and this was around the time that an EFIT was circulating in the media, which wasn't actually a bad likeness to Murdoch at the time of the attack, so you know that's a, another coincidence. So Heppy testified that during this meeting, the two had a conversation about spoon drains, which I don't really, I did not be bothered to look them up. But Murdoch told him that spoon drains were a fairly good place to dispose of a body because the ground around them regularly gets turned over by machinery mm. and therefore it's soft and easier to dig. Because in this kind of um, area, the the landscape is sort of arid or semi-arid. So it's quite hard ground. So it would have been easier. So I guess spoon drains are sort of all over the outback. And I do. I really do think Peter's body is buried in one. Bethan's now looking at it up on Wikipedia. I'm looking
1: up, I'm looking up spoon drains and they're massive.
0: Shall I do some uh, hold music again?
1: Yeah, do a little hold mo- music. And basically like a spoon drain, I'll show you a picture of it, but it's like a big channel.
0: Okay, so like it's almost drain, like a canal. Um,
1: To drain it and there's that, soil on yeah. the side and it's an agricultural thing. So I'm guessing it's so that you can put water onto your crops and stuff. So, yeah, that uh, would be a good place. Because, I think it would. And there would also be animals. If you've got water there, there's going to be animals that might gnaw away at the... Yeah, bottom.
0: dingoes. Yeah. D-I-N-G-O. Don't you D-I-N-G-O. dare put this in the N-G-O. episode Mark.
1: This will ruin our
0: credibility. Okay. And dingo what's his name, oh.
1: Guys, I'd like to apologise for my co-host. I think someone's had a bit too much sherbet.
0: I must have had two, two, red, two red Bulls today, too many Red Bulls.
1: Do you
0: want to just get back to the case? Yeah, I can edit this out. Um So a woman called Julianne McPhail testified that around a month before the attack, Murdoch had tried to sell her a silver gun. This is the gun Joanna described to the police. And Murdoch's defence had said that he didn't own a silver gun. So obviously that contradicted mm. his testimony. And it cast further doubt over his innocence. And he's trying
1: to get rid of it somehow as well.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, but that was before... Mm. Um, he just, he probably had several guns. He was just, you know, happening to sell one, but, but yeah, you know, it was a silver gun. She described exactly as Joanne had. Um, and Murdoch's defense had said he never owned one. So Mm. that was a lie. Um, so in all honesty, it was a weak defense. Murdoch's QC, Grant Algie had even called two witnesses who swore blind that they'd seen Peter at their service station eight days after the attack. They were pulled apart in the witness stand by the prosecution, though, telling a different story to each other and to the one that they'd told police in their original statements. Furthermore, the prosecution had CCTV from a service station that put Murdoch in the vicinity at the time of the attack. Rex Wild, acting for the prosecution, told the jury, He's certainly in the vicinity. Other people that might have been on the Stuart Highway on the 14th of July didn't all have moustaches, didn't all have guns in their vehicle, they didn't all drive 4 by 4s They don't all have what you might think is a slightly stooped shoulder effect, which Murdoch had, and you could see that in the CCTV. So there's a lot of coincidence there for you to consider, and the Crown submission to you is they're not coincidences. They are part of the circumstantial case. So at the end of the 10 week trial on the 13th of December, the jury delivered their verdicts on all three charges. They found Murdoch unanimously guilty on all counts. And this was a massive moment for Joanne, obviously, because the finger had been pointed at her for a number of years, Mm -hmm. actually, at this point. And she was now vindicated and she'd achieved justice for Peter as well. Mm Addressing Murdoch directly in his sentencing remarks, Justice Chief Brian Martin said, Having mentioned the effects of your crime, I need to add something about the particular effects on Ms Lees. From the calm and detached atmosphere of this courtroom, it is difficult to imagine the true extent of the terror that you inflicted upon Ms Lees. Although Ms Lees did her best to describe those effects during the course of her evidence and in her victim impact statement, I doubt that any description is capable of fully conveying the true extent of the trauma and terror that you imposed upon her. It must have been close to the worst nightmare imaginable. Unlike you, Ms Lees displayed considerable courage. For Ms Lees, the trauma did not end with her escape. The evidence at the trial and in her victim impact statement has touched upon subsequent events, but again, it is difficult to fully appreciate the stress associated with the subsequent investigation and the enormous media attention. It cannot be left unsaid that the manner in which you have conducted your defence has been an aggravating factor to Ms Lees and the family of Peter Falconio. You explored with Muzli's in the public forum of the preliminary examination events in Sydney that were utterly irreve- irrelevant and served no useful purpose but to embarrass Muzli's by endeavouring to cast a shadow over her reputation. That literally took five takes, and I'll have edited oh, no. most of them out. But oh, preliminary. Pre- preliminary examination. Oh. God, what's wrong with me?
1: Just go from the next sentence. Yeah,
0: at the trial in the face. This is still the judge summing yeah. up uh, pre-sentencing at the trial. In the face of a powerful crown case, you endeavoured to darken that shadow to the point of suggesting to the jury that not only was Musliez an unreliable witness, but she was not telling the truth about the disappearance of Mister Falconio. You pursued the idea that Mister Falconio is still alive, and the conduct of your defence was such as to convey the clear innuendo that Musliez was implicated in Mister Falconio's disappearance. By their verdicts, the jury rejected those assertions and suggestions. I, too, reject those suggestions. Justice Chief Brian Martin sentenced Bradley Murdoch to 28 years in prison. Wow. The same amount of years that Peter had lived for.
1: That's poetic.
0: Yeah, it really is. I thought that Mm. was so... Can't think of the right word. This case has just, like, fucked me. But, yeah, poetic. will go with them. Okay. Um... So that's not the end, really. Be- well, it kind of is and it isn't. But um, having conducted loads of research into this case and mm-hmm. looking at different discussion forums and speaking to people myself and obviously, you know, Bethan's, you know, you certainly had your own thoughts on this mm. and still have. The finger of suspicion is still very much pointed at Joanne. Murdoch has never admitted his guilt and some people say there are holes in the prosecution's case that the DNA was only trace DNA um, that his conviction should be overturned and he does have high-profile people supporting him solicitors lawyers Um, so there is definitely a shadow over the innocence of Joanne.
1: Well you think of like um, the Giordano case and I can't remember the guy's name George can't remember his surname. I can't remember. Um, and obviously the only evidence against him was the gunshot residue inside a pocket and yeah. that was found to be not enough. So if this is just trace evidence of DNA...
0: But there, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. I do feel Oh yeah, in there one, definitely is with this. But I do agree. More. I think you know advances in DNA could it's actually mean yeah. that an appeal renders that inadmissible mm-hmm. in a retrial. Um, for myself, I honestly think that he is guilty and I think, you know, as I said earlier, I really think he saw Joanne at that red rooster and he concocted a plan to track her down and rape her. And again, as I said earlier, I think Peter was collateral damage to him. Mm. I think, you know, I personally think Joanne is actually really brave and strong, um, but I think that strength has been misconstrued by as indifference.
1: Yeah. I think listening to you talk about this episode as well, this case has has changed my mind a little bit. Yeah. Um. I'm still not certain and I I want to now research further and see what it was that my gut instincts were that she was guilty so it's interesting to me
0: before doing thorough kind of research for this i i was probably 50 50 Mm -hmm. it was one of those where it was just a really interesting case where i thought did she do it and Mm. get away with it um but when you kind of really explore motives possible motives Mm. what actually could have happened i just don't see it some people say that actually you know some people who say that she did do it say that she did it quite some hours before Mm. um, she's claimed the attack happened and that you know other people saying they'd actually not seen Peter at some of these locations on that day Um, I don't know let us know what you think as ever guys we'd we'd love to hear your thoughts on this case hopefully you found it really interesting Mm -hmm. Um, appreciate we had to do it in two parts but I think it was the only way
1: I think that was really good to do it in two parts it set up the the people And then The Case, I really liked that.
0: So, as ever, get in touch in all of the usual ways. Mm -hmm. We are on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.
1: Search Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast.
0: And if you would like to support the show on Patreon, then you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Seeing Red podcast. Or if you're lazy, like me and Bethan, then just Google Patreon Seeing Red.
1: Yeah, we just um, had a little bit of a milestone. So thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. If you've got this far listening yeah um, thank you very much
0: yeah we really appreciate the support it always blows us away when people choose to actually contribute to the kind of running costs of the show mm-hmm. um when they don't have to and we, we're doing really well we've got like four or five thousand listeners a week now um so yeah you know tell your friends let them know we're not
1: going to have any listeners once they hear your singing from today's episode so mm. there we go that was nice while it lasted <laughs> sorry
0: guys <laughs> uh we'll see you next time then see you soon bye, bye. Hi Angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy And healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favourite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.